book of Esther, chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. I invite you to open your Bibles to Esther, and please rise for the reading of God's Word. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hatax, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hatax went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hatak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. And Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, as we enter into this passage and think about its application for us, I want to kind of set the context for that by inviting you to consider this. Consider where God has placed you in your life situations. Think about your neighborhood, where you live, perhaps an apartment complex, even a care home, wherever God has placed you. Think about your marital status, occupation, those you come into contact with, with various social groups and uh, connections with others. And I want you to ask God, through the context of this message, what is his purpose for having you in that particular place, 
at this particular time for his particular purposes. Our foundational truth this morning is that we can have boldness of faith in approaching the throne of God on behalf of other people. Let me say it again. We can have boldness of faith in approaching the throne of God on behalf of other people as exemplified in this story by Esther. But what we're going to see is a temptation, a temptation to be put in particular places, connected with certain people, but not necessarily wanting to fulfill God's purposes, especially if it involves personal risk. I love the story told of the circus performer by the name of Blondin. Blondin, and this is historical fact, set up a tightrope across Niagara Falls. Blondin called a group of people together, told him what he was going to be doing at a particular time at this particular place. Blondin actually tightroped across Niagara Falls. I would never do this, as you probably wouldn't. Blondin actually danced across the tightrope across Niagara Falls, and people cheered and clapped. Blondin stepped up his game by getting a wheelbarrow out and actually walked across this tightrope across Niagara Falls with this wheelbarrow. He would even place bricks in the wheelbarrow and do it again. And the crowd was becoming euphoric in anticipation for what Blondin would continue to do across this tightrope. Then Blondin said, now who believes I could carry a person in the wheelbarrow on the tightrope across Niagara Falls? And everybody raised their hands and shouted, yeah, you can do it. And then he said, who wants to volunteer to be that person? to be in the wheelbarrow, to walk across Niagara Falls. And people quickly pulled their hands down, as you might guess. You know, we often find it easy to celebrate the accomplishments of others. This can be athletic feats, maybe political positions people have gained. But if it involves personal risk on our part, we often say, no thanks. You know, we have opportunities every day. Sometimes it's an opportunity to speak to a stranger about Christ. It might be taking an unpopular position on a moral issue. It could be a step of faith into the unknown. And we often become indecisive when it involves personal risk. What we see in Esther is a model of someone who takes a risk of faith in coming before the king, Xerxes, on behalf of others. It would be a good idea to read the whole book of Esther, all 13 chapters during our meeting. And Jews often enjoy doing this on the annual celebration of Purim, which we'll talk about. When Jews do this, they assign the roles of a narrator, Mordecai, Esther, King Xerxes, Vashti, the queen who is uh, deposed, Haman, the the, um, uh, protagonist in the story, and then counselors. They're different people. And they're each, uh, that people that are involved in the story are encouraged to sort of play their roles and ham them up. When Haman comes on the scene, I should have said the antagonist, there's booing. When uh, Mordecai comes out, there's great cheering. However, as we can't spare the time to read the whole story of Esther today, we're going to have to summarize. 
Now, when you think about beauty pageants, you may not initially, first and foremost, think about God's or uh, God's purpose or godly purposes. But in the case of Esther, a beauty pageant led to her rise in prominence and God's preparation for her to be the conduit through which He would bring about the salvation of His people. Here's the backstory: Four hundred years before Christ, Esther found herself at a fork in the road. She could either offer herself as God's instrument or deny her identity as one of God's people. She was a young Jewish woman living in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. And as I mentioned uh, last week, that was where Nehemiah was before he was called to go back and help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. There in the Persian Empire, the king, Xerxes, deposed his queen, Vashti, because she was unwilling to dance at a public occasion. I would be with Vashti. I do not like to dance at public occasions. You would not want to see me dance in public occasions. But as a result of Vashti's unwillingness to dance, Xerxes deposed her as queen, and he held a beauty contest to find her replacement. Esther's cousin Mordecai convinced her to conceal her Jewish identity and enter the contest. And she was declared the winner and made queen of Persia. Trouble began when Haman was made the king's right-hand man and determined to massacre, annihilate all of the Jews in the empire because of Mordecai's refusal to bow down and basically worship him. Haman would convince the king to issue a royal edict and fix a day on which all Jews would be annihilated. So the book of Esther finds the Jews scattered in foreign lands because of their uh, unfaithfulness to God, and now they're threatened with extinction. The key question here is this, is God still in control even when these kinds of things are happening? Is he still active in the lives of his people and working out his plans? Or has he finally abandoned Israel? Has he finally given up on them? The teller of Esther's tale tries to answer that question for his own generation, saying this, that God is still at work even when it does not initially appear so. Most Christians are unfamiliar with the Feast of Purim, but it is a favorite among Jews. In late February or early March, Jewish families gather to feast, give gifts, and celebrate, and read the book of Esther aloud. Since Jews have continued to face persecution throughout time, the book of Esther is still dear to them. It plays a a, a central role in Jewish faith. The story can become a powerful statement about the reality of God in a world from which he appears absent, and this can be true for us. You see, there are times where we wonder where God is and how he is at work in various situations and circumstances in history. But what the story shows us is the providential working out of God, that he is at work in the midst of natural events to bring about his supernatural purposes, that he often tests his people and whether their faith will hold up under crisis. And he uses unusual events to bring about the salvation of his people in order to accomplish his ultimate purposes. You see, God demonstrates his providential care for people in exile. And I believe he's still doing that today for us who can feel like exiled people at times, living out our life of faith in the midst of adverse circumstances. 
What this shows is the historical occasion for the Feast of Purim, God showing up at a particular time to save his people, and it does point us forward to the fact that God ultimately provides a Savior in Jesus. Why is this book important? The interesting thing is that the name of God is actually not mentioned in the book, but there lies an important point. A lasting value of the book of Esther is to reveal God's acting in providence, God's activity resulting from his work through various people at particular times. And we learn that God is hidden, but God is active and involved. And his providence is inclusive of people and events. His time is superb. He has perfect knowledge and he allows man's free will, but he also controls history and works through destiny. Human freedom ultimately contributes to divine purposes. And God's providence can inspire great confidence and courage if we allow it to. So what do we learn here in the passage about living a life of faith and being a hero of faith? The five initial points I'm going to outline. First, a hero of faith responds, along with Mordecai, by recognizing our sinfulness. When the hit order is put out on Jewish, for Jewish people by Haman, and an edict goes around the whole province that people could put Jewish people to death, what we find Mordecai doing is recognizing his own sinfulness. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. We're told that he weeps and he wails. This was an indication of Mordecai's recognition of his own sinfulness. In other biblical stories, such as the Ninevites in Jonah, people put on sackcloth and ashes in recognition of their sin and as a humble recognition of their state and need for salvation. You see, Mordecai recognized that he himself could not accomplish his people's salvation and his own strength or ability. He couldn't save himself and he couldn't save his people outside of God's intervention. You know, most of the times in our culture, heroes, quote unquote, in our cultural people are people who project strength. Like they've got it together. They can save themselves. They can save or help other people. But in our faith and understanding of who we are and who God is, the first step for a hero of faith is actually responding by recognizing our sinfulness and our inability. That's why we have a prayer of confession every Sunday. We worship God, we celebrate who he is, and we recognize humbly who we are as people who are desperately in need of his intervention and salvation. Secondly, a hero of faith responds by acknowledging the reality of death. When, when Mordecai puts on uh, sackcloth and ashes, he's basically acknowledging that he's going to die unless God intervenes. There is an edict that has gone out to put all Jewish people to death. Mordecai's days are numbered unless God intervenes. You know, whenever we uh, celebrate Ash Wednesday, when we set ourselves apart during that season of Lent, it is a recognition that we all will die someday. It's a recognition of our mortality. It's also a recognition of our identification with Jesus, our Savior. And that even though in our mortality we will all day, one day die, Jesus provides the salvation that we need. Now, Mordecai didn't know at this point about Jesus, 
But he did recognize his own sinfulness and the reality of his own mortality and coming death without God's intervention. It also points us forward to celebrate the fact that God could save their people then, but God has saved us now through Jesus. Mordecai gets real about his grief in this situation and his anxiety. He tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth and ashes, and it says he wept and he wailed. These were normal signs of grief in the ancient world where people expressed their emotion much more than modern Westerners. I remember my first waking up to this reality. I was uh, doing my CPE, clinical pastoral education or experience, at uh, Presbyterian Intercommunity Hospital in Whittier, California, while I was in seminary. All summer long, I drove the 45 minutes from Pasadena to Whittier in tough traffic and high heat to go and be with people in a hospital setting. Well, I remember about two or three weeks in, I was sort of getting their ropes and gaining confidence and making hospital visits and crisis situations. But then I ran into a situation I was not prepared for. An Egyptian man died. And there were about 25 to 30 members of his family who were in the the waiting area in the hospital. And when the doctor was going to let them know that their patriarch, the patriarch of their family, had passed away, he called me over and he said, aren't you one of our chaplains? And I said, well, yeah, um, I'm training to be one. He said, well, you're coming with me. I got to go let this family know that this this guy died and you got to be with them after. I'm not sticking around. I said, okay. The doctor walked in and in about 10 seconds let them know that this man had died. He said, I'm sorry for your loss and quickly exited the room. I was there with about 30 people from this family. All hell broke loose. Women were literally tearing their hair out. Men were banging the walls. People were crying out and, and, and beating their chests. I mean, they reflected their grief physically. They reflected their grief in, in profound ways that we as Westerners often don't. I was in over my head and simply tried to stay as calm as I could in the situation, sit with them as things calm down, ask questions, be present, bring a cup of water, do the things that I could in the midst of what I didn't know what to do. Here, people are authentic about their grief in this story. And that's the third point. A hero of faith responds by being authentic with our emotions. We're good at stuffing our emotions. We're good at trying to hide them as Westerners and even as good Presbyterians. But what Mordecai and the people of God here illustrate is we, because of who God is, can be authentic about our emotions. We can be real. And they were real. Their lives were on the line and they were facing a tremendous crisis. A hero of faith is authentic about their emotions. Not putting a stiff upper lip on. Not trying to pretend like we have it all together and things are good when they're not. A hero of faith is actually authentic with emotions. Fourth, a hero of faith moves towards those in trouble. Notice what Mordecai does. Notice that he went towards the city and its center as he did so. He didn't turn away. He didn't isolate himself in his grief or run for the hills. He moved towards people in their trouble. Esther was distressed to learn about Mordecai's sorrow. So she sent 
clothes for him to wear and the place of sackcloth, probably so that he could enter the palace, but he refused to accept them. So Mordecai's still in this place of, of grief and, 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 and fear over what's going to happen to the people of God. But he doesn't run away. He actually moves towards the trouble. When somebody's going through grief and loss in your life, do you move towards them or do you move away? When there's difficulty or hardship, do you run or do you move towards? John 10 gives us a great example. A good shepherd lays down his life for a sheep. A good shepherd goes towards those that are struggling. He protects the sheep. We're told that the thief you know, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The, the hired hand leaves when the wolves come. But as followers of God and as people of faith, we move towards those in trouble. We don't run. We all know the human temptation to run away from your difficult problems. We can do this in certain ways, like even the use of drugs, alcohol, or pornography, overindulging in hobbies like TV watching, games, or social media use, excessive sleeping, or or stress eating. There are many ways we seek to run away from trouble or to avoid it through various behaviors rather than dealing with problems head on. One of the more striking examples of this, this aspect of being a hero of faith is our stories that we heard from 9-11. One of which on September 11, 2001 was a man named Stephen Stiller. He had served his shift as part of the New York firefighters and, uh, who was assigned to the Brooklyn Squad 1. He had just finished his shift and was planning to go golfing when he heard about the first plane striking the North Tower of the World Trade Center. Instead of walking away, he put on his 60 pounds of gear, walked through the Brooklyn Tunnel, and was actually in the other tower when it also collapsed after he had saved many others. The stories of heroic efforts from that day still resound in our memory and reflect some of the best of people within our nation. But within our faith, the recognition is true Still, also, we move towards those in trouble. We call them. We visit them. We reach out. We reflect care and support, much like Mordecai did with his people. And what happens as Mordecai does that, as he connects with Esther, is there becomes a, a, a relationship that occurs through them becoming a community of grief. And what I mean by that is they quickly realize they were in this together. That the hit order on Jewish people was going towards all of them. And unless they bonded together and figured out how to respond, they were all done for. A community of grief forms, and quickly, when Esther hears about Mordecai's situation, she asks him and other people to, to put on sackcloth and ashes and to fast and pray before she would go and talk to the king. And I love the fact that she says, and, and those with me, uh, my servants, and I will do so also. She doesn't say, you guys fast and pray. You guys go put on sackcloth and ashes. Well, I'm here in the king's palace, sitting high and mighty. No, she becomes connected too. So do we share in the grief, trouble, hardship of others? Do we form a community of grief? Do we weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn? Or do we separate ourselves saying, oh, it's too bad for them. I'm doing all right over here and I'm going to stay over in this spot. 
No, what happens here is a community of grief and a community of suffering is formed. And we as a church become that type of community uh, when we're at our best, when somebody is going through hardship or difficulty. What can we do primarily as heroes of faith, as we bond together? It's this. A hero of faith approaches the king. Hero of faith approaches the king by recognizing that we do not have access ourselves. And this is what's illustrated in Mordecai. Mordecai, we are told, could go no further than the king's gate because he was wearing sackcloth and and ashes. He wasn't allowed there because somebody who was wearing those clothes was thought to be ceremonially unclean. He did not have access to the king. And guess what? Apart from Jesus, that's our position, right? Because of our sin. It's like we have sackcloth and ashes on. We have sinned, all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. We are all sinners in need of saving, and we are all bound for an eternal death apart from God and do not have access to him. We're like Mordecai at the gate, apart from Jesus' intervention. So a hero of faith knows we don't have access on our own, but a hero of faith also knows that we know one who does have access to the king. Amen? Like Mordecai knew that Esther had access to the king and he appealed to her to go and appear before the king. You and I have one who has access to the king and his name is Jesus. He is our great high priest and mediator. He has gone into the heavens, the throne room of God in heaven, and as a result has access to God. And we now can come before him any day or night. Our response can be one of turning to him. We, therefore, the third aspect of being a hero of faith and approaching the king, we can therefore approach the king, God, by faith in his grace. This is how this worked out for, for Esther. Notice when Mordecai initially went to her, she basically said, you know, it's been 30 days since he's called upon me. I haven't had access to the king for 30 days. But Mordecai sort of, you know, pushes back and says, hey, but who knows? And this is the famous verse in 414. But who knows that for such a time as this, you've been placed in your royal position. And don't think that you're going to be outside of this edict to put Jews to death, you know, they're going to find out that you're Jewish and your life is on the line too, just as much as ours is. And when Mordecai puts it that way, we find Esther summoning the strength spiritually to go before the king and to make this request. I just want to note first and foremost that Esther is feeling anxious about this and fearful when Mordecai first gives this suggestion. And I want to acknowledge the fact that many of us often feel fearful and anxious about approaching the throne of God through prayer when we're going through various challenges. I want to remind you, Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Other scriptures, like Ephesians 3.12, can help, where it says, In Him, in Jesus, and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. 
In Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then therefore approach the throne of grace with confidence that we will find grace in our time of need. The, the practice there in that day and age in the Persian Empire was that somebody appeared before the king. The king had to extend their scepter to them and that was an act of grace and mercy that you can now approach the king. And if the king didn't do that, <coughs> Esther was going to lose her life. There was grace and mercy extended to Esther as grace and mercy has been extended to you and I through Jesus. And as a result, we have access to the king And as a hero of faith, we can bring our requests before him. Scripture is filled with other words of assurance and comfort along these lines. In 1 Timothy 2.5, it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Jesus sacrificed himself, experienced the judgment that we in our sins deserve from God on the cross, and therefore paved the way to access with God. In Hebrews 8, 12, 8, 1 through 2, it says, Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord not by a mere human being. And later in Hebrews 10, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, he has opened up for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us then hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Friends like Esther with Xerxes and how God saved his people through her, God has ultimately saved his people, you and I, through Jesus. Let's remember that each and every one of these Old Testament stories about a hero of faith ultimately points us to the ultimate hero of faith, Jesus. In response, a hero of faith, you and I, acts in faith in God's power to deliver us. I love the way Mordecai points this out to Esther. He says, and even if you don't go and appear before the king, God is able to deliver us. And basically Mordecai has a sense of assurance that God's going to provide salvation and deliverance. If Esther doesn't do it, God will find another way to do it. We know and trust that it is ultimately Jesus who provides that salvation. But a hero of faith trusts in faith in God's power to deliver us in each and every situation. The hero of faith also acts in faith in God's placement of us into a unique position for kingdom impact and influence. God has worked to save you through Jesus, but God hasn't now left you alone after we experience that salvation and await it. The rest of our life is meant to be spent as a celebration of the unique spaces and places God has put us in so that we can be used for his good purposes and we can be used to point people to his salvation. Who knows? But that you, brothers and sisters, have come to your position for such a time as this. You're not in your marriage by accident. 
You're not a parent by accident. You're not a grandparent by accident. You're not a neighbor. You're not a coworker. You're not a member of this church. You're not living in western Nevada County by accident. A hero of faith recognizes that you've been placed here for such a time as this. And a hero of faith ultimately celebrates God's power to answer prayer as we go, as we gather, as we sacrifice. We celebrate the fact that we are in this together and through prayer and through reliance upon God, God can do great things through us. Jesus reminds us that apart from him, we can do nothing. So in humility, like Esther, we need to turn to God in prayer to give up our sense that we can do things on our own strength or ability and acknowledge our sinfulness and need for a savior, acknowledge our emotions and access to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and ultimately move towards trouble in our community and use the places and positions we've been given to build intentional relationships of impact and influence for Christ. Esther's story doesn't have communion in it, but it does illustrate the recognition that God is a God who moves on behalf of his people, and God is a God who works to bring restoration and redemption ultimately through Jesus. Just as Mordecai moved towards the trouble his people were facing, just as Esther moved towards the king and made her request to the king, which was ultimately granted and ultimately became the avenue of salvation for God's people, Jesus doesn't run from trouble. God actually sends Jesus into this world. He takes on our sinful condition, our, our flesh, but in living a perfect life, In dying a perfect death, he works to redeem us. And friends, that's what we celebrate when we celebrate communion. Let us pray. God, you are the hero of of our faith. None of us is a hero or a heroine as a heroine as in and of ourselves and by ourselves, in our own strength or ability. We're only able to do what you call us to do as you fill us and as you empower us and as we ultimately celebrate that you are the one who has done everything necessary for us. So as we gather at this table today, may we rejoice in you and your salvation for us through Christ's sacrifice on the, the cross and through his death and resurrection. Renew our faith. Encourage us as we continue to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. sin and darkness and love is mighty and so much stronger the king of glory king above all